Hi, this is Steve Holroyd from CrossCheck.com, and you're listening to Pro Lacrosse Talk. Hans Reimer. Snyder with scores! Now Pinnell scores! Hands off for Rabel, switches hands and scores! Kylie O'Miller showing off those shifty skills. Right off the bat, there's Lyle Thompson! Welcome to Pro Lacrosse Talk, the voice of Pro Lacrosse. I'm Hutton, he's Adam, together we're bringing you interviews with your favorite players and coaches, as well as news from all four professional lacrosse leagues. So I'm here with Steve Holroyd, lacrosse historian and co-founder of CrossCheck.com, formerly RetroLax.com. Steve, thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. No, of course, it's great to have you on, especially with so few live lacrosse games on. It's kind of great to go back to the pro games roots a bit. You guys have just so much, you know, historical video on your site that I think it'd be a great time to draw attention to it. So we appreciate you reaching out. I love your podcast because I think pro, I still, I think pro still gets really underserved, both in box and field. I mean, field, it's still, it's got this college parochial thing yeah. to it no one really although although the rainbow league is sort of changing that yeah in box it's the same way people want to talk about you know the major the uh, the, the, the major league in ontario and the all and the wla and they kind of turn their nose up at the nll so i love your guys podcast i'm glad someone's paying attention to the pro stuff never mind the women you know yeah, it's, no. it's, it's good to hear no that's what we appreciate and we f- figured like you know if we're going to call ourselves pro lacrosse talk we have to cover all four leagues you know so that's kind of we're at, you know, you, you know, we still, we're, we were big fans of the MLL, so we still cover them. There's still a lot of great players in there. Um, obviously, we love what Paul's doing with the PLL, and Adam's been more of a box fan than I have, but I've been, you know, kind of getting into it, you know. Um, I don't really have a team right now, per se, but, uh, you know, Adam's always been a big Wings fan, and now that they're back, it's it's kind of a great time. And, you know, the women's game, too, we do think it's, it's you know, deserves to get some due because there's some really talented women, and the skill level is just incredible. It's a good time here to draw on my Irish roots and point out that I get really, I, I love watching women's lacrosse, but a part of me really hates it being called lacrosse because the rules are so different. And I'm reminded in Ireland, the men play hurling, mm-hmm. but there's a women's version of the game using a stick, using the ball, but with so many different rule changes, it has a different name. It's called camogie. And, and, and while it'll never happen because it's, it's easy to mark, it's easier to market it as lacrosse. Mm-hmm. It's really so different other than yeah. sticking the ball. It, it frustrates me sometimes that, uh, you know, if people like I'm spoiled, my main background is soccer. And the beauty about soccer is that it's the one team sport where the rules, the ball size, everything, the field size, everything for the men and women is exactly the same. Yeah. I can truly appreciate watching a women's soccer match because it's just soccer. Mm-hmm. lacrosse is such a different game you know but yeah. it is what it is no absolutely i agree 100 percent on that it's it's very different and you know and that's why i think it's faster in a way and people people don't realize that you know they're like oh there's no hitting it's like yeah but it's it's a different game you know it's more finesse more right finesse. it's actually it's actually more skilled in a way because there isn't the, the kind of like random slashing you can get away with in the boys game you know absolutely yep um, so tell us what you do kind of in your day job and then how you first got into the sport of lacrosse. Uh, my day job, I'm a labor attorney in the city of Philadelphia representing unions. I grew up in the Philadelphia area, which did not have much of a lacrosse tradition, notwithstanding uh, Penn University's presence. Uh, but when the Philadelphia Wings came with the original National Lacrosse League in 1974, I was exposed to the box game, which looked very exciting. And I became a fan and uh, followed it as best I could. Uh, and then they went away after two years. In 87, the second wings came back. At that point, I was old enough to start playing and pick up box leagues and whatnot. And I've just been a fan of the sport ever since. That's awesome. You know, we got another wings fan in this discussion with Adam. Absolutely, yeah. I'm super excited that they're back. But before we get into uh, the current 
uh, iteration of the wings and kind of the history of box. Let's talk about Crosscheck's archive. Uh, you restored countless number uh, of old games that are now available on your website. When did you really decide to kind of go into that restoration process and, and restore old footage and put it online for everyone to see? Um, I always get the timeline mixed up, but my retro, my my crosscheck partner Dave Coleman mm-hmm. actually had a site back in the '90s. I think it was NLLTV. Okay. Dot, dot org. He 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 was doing this years ago. Uh, he uh, you know the, well the one nice thing about being in the Philadelphia area and that's where Dave was from. The wings were pretty well covered. So yeah. the original the original wings were pretty well covered. So he was able to get old uh, original uh, National Lacrosse League footage, and he would post that. He would get MILL, Major Indoor Lacrosse League footage, the, you know, the precursor to the current NLL, mm-hmm. and, and he put that up. And then it was down for a while, and then about a year and a half ago, he reached out to me. He said he was going to start it all up again, but now with technology, he's able to restore it, make it high def. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the nice thing about this historical stuff, when, when people know you're out there, suddenly people come out of the woodwork and get you more stuff. So... Um, very uh, ex-players from the 74-75 league started pointing us in the direction of, oh, you can get footage here, you get footage there. Larry Lloyd, a great player with the uh, with the original Wings, yeah. sent us a copy of the NFL Films documentary they did on lacrosse. Oh. It had been on Facebook before, but now we had the actual 8mm that we could convert and get a, a pristine copy. So that, that was mainly uh, Dave's thing. I, I do the writing part. He was the one that was all over the, the video. But he started that. He had boxes of stuff, VHS and what have you. He started that probably 20 years ago. That's awesome. Anything to get a uh, Larry Lloyd's uh, famous mustache and high def is, is always <laughs> a good thing. <laughs> you know, it's fascinating. So, I mean, you know, there you go, listeners. If you guys are looking for some uh, lacrosse games to watch in the meantime, uh, definitely head over to crosscheck.com. There's countless games on there, um, you know, from as early as the 70s and uh, to the 80s and 90s as well. So definitely check those out. But um, let's kind of start back in the early 1900s when, you know, pro lacrosse in the North America was kind of starting to take off. I mean, your research goes way back even before an American League even got off the ground. Uh, tell us a bit about that first pro box lacrosse game in 1932 between Toronto and Montreal. Yeah, I mean, the, the professional was always a dirty word, although you had pockets of field lacrosse teams trying to go professional. Uh, it, it was lukewarm response to it. It was, it was in the box game that it really started taking off. And that started when it's funny. We talk about lacrosse being the creator's game. And of course it is. And of course it goes back, you know, well before uh, settlers came to North America, but the box game was literally invented out of whole cloth in 1931 when hockey teams needed a way to fill their arenas in the summertime. Mm -hmm. And with that, you saw the first professional box lacrosse league in 1931. That was the Canadian version, the international uh, professional lacrosse league. In 1932, America followed suit, and that was with the American box lacrosse league. But they were all played in baseball stadiums. They were playing box outside under the lights in baseball stadiums. Um, and the footage that's on our site from, from 1932 at Madison Square Garden that was the first box game played in the United States in the Garden, but that featured two teams from the Canadian League. It gets really kind of you know confusing. Mm-hmm. But uh, th- th- there were three attempts in the 30s. In 1932, there was the American Box Lacrosse League. Winner of 33-34, you had a league that it went by a couple names. It was either the North American Lacrosse League or the American Lacrosse League uh, with teams in Pittsburgh and Chicago and Detroit. And then that failed 
halfway through its first season. And then in 34, um, you had the Pacific, uh, the Pacific Coast Lacrosse League, also box. Um, that, that was doing pretty well, but it also didn't last its season out because they couldn't afford to pay the rent. Mm. So from the very, you know, box was literally invented to be a professional game to fill arenas in the summertime. It never really gained traction for lots of different reasons, but that's where the game started. Uh, it wasn't until you saw the pro sports explosion of the sixties when you had a separate football league with the AFL and baseball finally expanded for the first time since 1901. And it was a rival basketball league and a rival hockey league and, Pro major league pro soccer return for, for, with a vengeance for the first time since the twenties that uh, a couple individuals got together again with hockey connections and formed the national lacrosse association of 1968 um, with teams in Detroit and Toronto and Montreal, but also all the storied West coast box lacrosse teams in new Westminster and Victoria and, mm-hmm. uh, and Vancouver. Um, and, uh, and that, that was a league that only lasted a season, but, it was not necessarily unsuccessful. It just had problems with logistics. I mean, it's hard to believe today, but uh, travel from Ontario to British Columbia was really kind of cost prohibitive back then. Um, so the, the and there were two people involved in that league in particular: Morley Kells, who was coaching the Toronto Maple Leafs lacrosse team, and Jim Bishop, longtime coach of the Oshawa Green Gales, a, a powerhouse, like you know, eight seven-time Minto Cup winners. Uh, he was coaching the Detroit Olympics and, and working with the Detroit Red Wings. It kind of planted the seed. It was these two guys who, by 1974, convinced enough people to try again and and form the National Lacrosse League, uh, which lasted for two seasons, but really was what set the groundwork that, that, uh, that allowed the current NLL to be around today, even though there was a break, there was a 12-year break between the leagues. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And so I guess let's go into the NLL a little bit because I know it, like you said, it, it didn't really fail. It, it did well, but I think, you know, the Olympics kind of had part to play in it. But some of the teams actually were financially uh, profitable or at least, you know, stable, correct? Yes, the NLL was, was a victim of circumstance. I mean, it was, it was one of those leagues. It was funny. They, they had a team in Philadelphia, which really didn't have any kind of lacrosse tradition to speak of outside of Penn, and it blew up, you know. They put a team in Maryland, and, you know, Maryland, while Maryland was a field lacrosse hotbed, it had generally been openly antagonistic toward the box game, but people came out to watch the Maryland Arrows play. Meanwhile, teams in uh, places that had been box lacrosse hotbeds in, in various minor leagues, like Rochester and Syracuse, no one went to those games. So it was various franchise shifts. And of course, the one other interesting quirk, you know, the NLL insisted on being a summer league because they had a lot of NHL involvement. And yeah. really the, the main the main concept was let's let's fill our arenas in the summertime. So we're getting a source of revenue. Well, even as late as the seventies, Maple Leaf Gardens did not have air conditioning. It was a it was a it was a problem in the nineteen sixty eight league that kept people away. It was a problem in seventy four. So Toronto had a team that then moved after seventy four, uh, moved to Boston in seventy five. So you had some teams that were very well supported in places where you wouldn't have expected it. Other teams that weren't at all supported in places where you would have expected some support. But uh, yeah, overall the league was fairly healthy. So after the seventy five season, you had basically Montreal, uh, Maryland. And Philadelphia doing really well. Uh, Quebec, Boston, 
Long Island, not so much. But the two owners, the owners of the Philadelphia and Maryland teams were really well-heeled people. And what was an interesting harbinger for what would happen in 87, they were basically willing to capitalize the whole league to keep it going. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they would pay for whatever it took to keep Long Island and Boston going. But it was a double whammy of not only was the Montreal Forum going to be out of commission because of the Olympics, but it also turned out Boston Garden was being renovated. So it really could, mm-hmm. took like two teams out of the mix. And at that point, you know, they just decided it wasn't worth it. I think around that time, Fitz Dixon, who owned the Wings, wound up buying the 76ers. So suddenly his money had a better place to go. And, uh, and yeah, so it was like a combination of circumstances but no it was not the abject failure that say world team tennis had been or uh or you know or world team boxing which lasted like one game and then collapsed mm-hmm. you know it, it it drew good crowds it was it was it was getting grassroots support and yeah it was unfortunate in the in the national lacrosse league circumstance it really was a combination of circumstances and most of the people involved including like ed tepper who was involved with the wings originally as an owner and then as an executive uh, pretty much everyone who's involved with that league says that if we survived 76, we'd still be here today. Yeah, no, and that's pretty interesting, too, the fact that they unfortunately, you know, weren't sustainable because it kind of took a while before, um, you know, another attempt was made at it. And, you know, so we talked about some of the fails, failures in the 60s and 70s. Um, it took them till the 80s to finally come up with another league, and that was uh, the Eagle Pro Box League. Remind me who, who, who started that and what kind of got them in. It wasn't really traditional lacrosse people getting into the lacrosse game, correct? Correct. In fact, the, the, I guess the irony is it took people with no real background in lacrosse to actually come up <laughs> with a model that worked. Yeah, it was, it was uh, Ross Klein and Chris Fritz were two promoters. They were like, okay. like rock, rock concert promoters. And they were involved with a, with a third individual, Ira. You know, his name escapes me, and it's and it's inexcusable because he was owner. He was a co-owner of the Kansas City Comets indoor soccer team, and I'm usually all over soccer, but I'm drawing <laughs> drawing a blank right now. But anyway, these three individuals were involved in promoting, and it was simply how do we fill? It really is very practical. How do we you know find more uh, revenue opportunities for these arenas? And bear in mind, at the time, this it's 80, 85, 86, 87 was when the idea was germinating. You had hockey. You had pro basketball. Indoor soccer, it actually began to boom. I mean, at that mm-hmm. point, the major indoor soccer league looked like it was really going to stick around. It had teams that were outdrawing hockey and basketball teams in the same – in teams that were in the same markets. Oh, wow. And so and so they were always out for an opportunity. And Initially, they would come up they – they had crazy ideas like – um, lacrosse played on rollerblades. I mean, yeah. these guys, these guys were not purists, mm-hmm. but in the end, I guess they, they asked around and they'd heard that the NLL of 74, 75, this might be the way to go. So they tested the waters in, in, in 86 with what was called as a super series. It was a Canadian box lacrosse all-star team playing against an American field lacrosse all-star team, essentially. And, and they toured various cities uh, to, to again, gauge interest Philadelphia drew big crowds. Philadelphia had never forgotten box lacrosse. Again, places like Rochester continued to sort of turn their noses up at it. At the end of the Super Series, they had they did what was supposed to be a World Cup of box lacrosse. Again, it wound up mostly being just Canada and the U.S. The bottom line is, at the bottom line is, at the end of it all, they decided there's interest here. We're going to start a pro league. The initial plan was to have a Canadian division and a Eagle division. Uh, okay. But when but when there weren't enough interest out of the Canadian teams, 
the Eagle Division became the Eagle League. And in 1987, Eagle League Pro Box Lacrosse began with four teams, Baltimore, Washington, Northern New Jersey, and Philadelphia, playing a limited eight-game schedule. But it, but it turned out to be much more successful than the previous leagues for a couple of reasons. Again, the, the, the irony, Klein and Fritz being not lacrosse guys, they didn't mm-hmm. feel burdened by tradition or expectations. Mm-hmm. So among other things, they, they said, look, this isn't going to be a summer game. No one wants to sit inside in the summertime. They made it a winter game. Mm-hmm. Two, much more important, they kind of took the lessons of the other leagues that had come before, not just lacrosse, that had come and failed, and said, we need to keep costs down. So what, they, what the, the Eagle League was a single-entity league, and that means they weren't, there weren't franchises. The league owned the teams. The league owned the players. And so the league was able to keep control on costs and things like that. And so they, 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 they had this low-key season in 87, eight games, limited schedule, limited travel. But it turned out to be very successful. So they returned in 1988. They, they returned in 89, rebranding as the major indoor lacrosse league, slow expansion. They were able to keep control of things, keep control of player costs. Players famously are only making $100 a game. Mm-hmm. Um, just as famously, players are getting moved around to accommodate their day jobs. Mm-hmm. So you had like, you know, the, the Philadelphia Wings able to acquire the Gate Brothers, uh, uh, not because Detroit had any interest in trading the Gates, but because the Gates were working around the Maryland area. They needed to live closer. Uh, but, the, but you know, that we could sort of laugh about that now. But the important thing was the, the owners of the MILL had a model that allowed it to exist. I mean, unlike every other previous pro lacrosse league, you knew each winner it was going to be back. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, of course, it continued and it eventually evolved into the National Lacrosse League we know and love today. Yeah, that's that's great. Yeah, and Steve Hutton's uncle Ed actually played for the Baltimore Thunder. Yeah, he he tried out. He didn't play long, and I think it goes back to kind of one of your things is not only did these guys have day jobs, but um, you know, he played college lacrosse at UMBC, and it was uh, I think again the purest thing where he tried it out, and he's like, "This isn't lacrosse." Like they, the first thing they had us do is like teach us to cross check or whatever, you know. And so I think that kind of showed kind of how they were still struggling to kind of get past, you know, those preconceived notions with um, the traditional field lacrosse fans a little bit. But um, weren't most of these guys American field lacrosse players kind of playing the indoor game? Yeah, I was about to say, even though Americans had played in the NLL, in fact, this may come as a surprise, Bruce Arena, who is, <laughs> you know, well, a well-known U.S. soccer coach, yeah. coached the national team to the quarterfinals in 2002, um, the World Cup. He was a great lacrosse player. He was a great lacrosse player, player, Cornell, and he played with the, the with the uh, uh, Montreal um, Quebecois in 1975 with Jim yep. Bishop. Um, yeah, so, the, the, but as a rule, field players it was it was both the the bias. They they sort of turned their noses up at it, but it was also such a different game. I mean, without getting on too much of a tangent, in '73, a, a guy named Dan Snyder, not the guy who owns the Redskins, but another <laughs> Dan Snyder. Um, he did a summer series of games with an American field lacrosse team playing against the Brantford Warriors and some of these top Canadian teams. And yeah, the, the level of hitting just blew their mind. I mean, it's not, it wasn't something they were used to. Um, and, and, you know, for that reason, even in the super series and, and the world cup, the American team struggled. In fact, for the so-called world cup, John Grant senior and a goalie named uh, Sean Quinlan were suddenly American. They're suddenly wearing USA jerseys. <laughs> 
to sort of keep the, to keep the games interesting. But uh, yeah, but the the original Eagle League was yeah, you're exactly right. It was designed to have American field players come in, and even and they called it indoor lacrosse. They specifically didn't call it box lacrosse because mm-hmm. part of it was they wanted to get away from. I mean, even then, with the limited pro experience, box lacrosse had had a reputation of being something like roller derby. I mean, and even going back to 1932, you read the press reports from 32 and 34, people are just shocked. I mean, one, one reporter in 32 said, this is pro wrestling. There's no way people can be hitting each other this hard and surviving. This has got to be fake. And so they, they specifically branded it indoor lacrosse. They took away some of the elements of cross-checking, some of the more violent elements of the game, mm-hmm. uh, to, and, and, and they wanted to make it a league where the American field player uh, could thrive. Um, because, yeah, that, that, that bias remained very much in effect. You know, it's funny. I see, again, with my soccer background, I, used to, I, I still see a bit of that with, with indoor and outdoor soccer, but nowhere near to the level that you still see. I mean, uh, it's, it's incredible to me, you know, getting way ahead, but like the New York Riptide. No one goes to those games. How can Long Island not support a pro lacrosse team? Yeah. It's because it's, it's a field territory. They just don't get box and they don't want to. So, But anyway, yeah, the Eagle League was All-American originally. And, and as a result, the play was pretty competitive. I mean, uh, someone from Canada might have said, oh, my God, this is rubbish. But to, to the casual fan, it was good lacrosse being played by a lot of good players of equal skill. But mm-hmm. with expansion, because, uh, you know, again, Buffalo got a team. Detroit got a team. Inevitably, Canadian players started creeping into it. And then you started seeing the golf in talent. And, you know, the Gate brothers were the first example. But then when Buffalo came in with basically all Canadian team and then ran roughshod, uh, the the American experiment quickly ended. Mm -hmm. And how, how important do you think it was for this kind of sustainability of the league and growth for for those young superstars to kind of join the league? I think it, it was it was exciting. Um, um, it, it's hard to say. I mean, like here in Philadelphia, people just love the sport. And in Philadelphia, they, they, they had a, they had a great idea. They brought John Grant Senior back yep. to play that first season, so there was a bit of a connection. But people just loved the game because it was fast, it was athletic, and it was hard hitting. And and again, Philadelphia, since we didn't really know the lacrosse, the lacrosse stars of the past anyway. We were we were happy in our, our in our ignorance. We just liked sure. the game. I mm. think though, as the game progressed, yeah, it was because again, Americans they're used to seeing certain things. I'm used to seeing a college star enter the pros. If it's basketball or football, uh, even now to a lesser extent, but still, even in hockey, if I hear about a guy in college, I want to see him play pro. So mm-hmm. I think it, I think it was in order to sort of legitimize the, the major indoor lacrosse league into being something more than just a glorified exhibition season. I think it was important that, you know, the, the gates left Syracuse and then did what good college players did. They then joined the major indoor lacrosse league. Dave Petromala, you know, he leaves John yeah. Hopkins. He gets drafted. He goes to Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. You started seeing the league operating the way you'd expect a professional league to operate. And then of course, on top of it, to have players like the gates come in and be every bit as great as were advertised. Um, again, I think it had a lot in, in legitimizing the league, had a lot to do with ESPN, which even then was looking for content because mm-hmm. the, what they used to call the dose, you know, the ESPN <laughs> two, uh, it was supposed to be the edgier version of sports. They were, they signed up and were televising these games. I mean, they're great players. You can't go wrong with great players. I mean, in any sport, whether it was, Red Grange, when he made the jump from college to the NFL and suddenly legitimizing pro football mm-hmm. or, 
the ABA when they were stealing kids as undergrads, you know, Julius Irving and Spencer Haywood to liven up their league. Talent is talent. So, yeah, I think it was a huge step. Uh, um, even though they were Canadian, people saw them as, well, they're Syracuse grads. It's like what we're used to seeing. Mm-hmm. And I think it, had, it went a long way towards getting people to treat. This isn't roller derby. This isn't just some kind of glorified exhibition. This is a real sport, and let's start supporting it as such. Yeah, no, definitely. And, uh, you know, the these uh, fans embraced it. I mean, you had 18,000 fans, uh, you know, coming out to games in the, the late 90s uh, when the league was really starting to, you know, come into its own. Um, when did you really think it started to take off? And then I guess go into a little bit uh, about the transition from the MILL uh, to the National Lacrosse League that is today. Well, I think it's funny. Your, your question is the answer because it's all about money. Mm-hmm. The league really st- – I mean, it was there was – they tried to, you know, they, they went to six teams and then back to four. I mean, there was some ebb and flow as they were trying to find their way with markets, but they eventually, you know, found the stable markets. You know, Philadelphia was stable. Buffalo was stable. Rochester got a foothold, you know, and, 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 and with stability, you had growth that you could count on. And as a result, you started to see money. So not surprisingly, as the league got more successful, you found not just players, but also owners, quote owners starting to, to to chafe against the the restrictions that single entity provided it was basically client you know, uh, you know um, uh, the, the original owners um, uh, keeping a control of things that you had a rebellion basically yeah you if I recall correctly in 1997 you had a brand new league national lacrosse league originally formed as a separate league it was going to challenge um M-I-L-L, mm-hmm. uh, and along the way, take all the players and all with it. And then uh, Fritz and Klein, realizing they were beaten, said, okay, fine, we'll join your league. We'll own the wings, and we'll join your league. So it was around – it was really taking off in the mid-'90s, and, and the evidence was that's when it became privatized, so to speak, is people saw money to be made, and, and, and as a result, um, it became a traditional league with separate franchises. Not for nothing, that's when you first started seeing the cracks – where the league a couple times had to fight with its players and, and almost dodge uh, folding again because without the cost restrictions, you know, without cost restri- restrictions, suddenly the losses get a little higher. But no, I mean, as, but I think as far as the sport, people were going to accept certainly as early as the 90s. I mean, in the early 90s, even Canada started trying to copy. In 1991, Canada tried a national lacrosse league with four teams in Ontario. It was a one and done, you know, one year and done. Same model, hundred hundred dollars a game type of thing. Uh, but again, the, the Canada still has a bias towards pro box. The same way here in America, I think there's still a bias against pro field. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, but uh, but it, it's certainly down here. It was it was here and it's here to stay. I mean, uh, it, it, the product speaks for itself. It's 2020, and we're still talking about a league that's been around since 1987. I mean, there's a lot of soccer leagues that can't say that. Never mind you know, the prior lacrosse leagues. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Today's show is being brought to you in part by Stitcher Premium. You can use Stitcher Premium to listen to shows ad-free such as Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, My Favorite Murder, Wolverine the Lost Trail, or our favorite, The Fantasy Footballers. For only $4.99 a month or $34.99 a year, you get access to Stitcher Originals, bonus episodes, and comedy albums. Better yet, if you go over to stitcher.com premium and use the promo code lacrosse today, you can get one month free. So head on over to Stitcher, sign up, and get your free trial today. So I guess let's go into now, you know, you ha- we have the modern NLL, and we talked about how um, it, it had still some growing pains in the early 2000s. You had teams that were being added but then folding right away or being added and relocating every few years, uh, including, you know, eventually the Wings, who had been there for 28 years, moved to New England in 2014. Um, I don't know, how has the growing pains kind of affected the league, you know, in those early 2000s? I, I think the growing pains, it's, and, and this is not lacrosse specific, and, I, and I'm not like shaming anybody when I say this, but in any startup league, you know, the people who are there at the beginning and who are losing money are happy to find a way to recoup some of that. And the way to do that is with expansion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, and it's almost like a Ponzi scheme element to it, although it's a, it's a dirty word. So it's, it's kind of an unfair characterization, but it's the reality. And, and that's all well and good when expansion when when owners being properly vetted and you make sure you're getting good groups but in in a lot of cases in lacrosse and again it's not exclusive to lacrosse this is sort of what killed the original north american soccer league the the old owners the current owners were happy to get new money wherever they could find it and so they would expand to any place that was willing to have a team and that's all well and good when it takes off. You know, like I'm sure in 1974, there's probably some misgivings about putting a team in Philadelphia. It's like Philadelphia, they, they didn't have a team in 68. There's no lacrosse history there, but it took off. So, okay, mm-hmm. yep. success. That's all well and good. But, you know, when, when, when this version of the NLL expands to Syracuse, because you figure, oh, Syracuse, why not? And it turns out, and, it, and, it, and it's backed by the AHL hockey owners, so it's, it's got to be on good footing. But it turns out no one goes to games, and then the team has to move or fold. You know, in the short term, the owners don't mind because they got their expansion fee. But in mm-hmm. the long term, it makes the league look weak. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, failing teams, notwithstanding whatever money you got up front in an expansion fee, failing teams drag down the rest of the league. And so it was the, it was the too rapid expansion without properly vetting the owners that sort of caused the problems the NLL had in that, you know, in, in, as they turn from the aughts into the tens, you know, mm-hmm. um, I think current, you know, Nick Sakevich, you know, they, 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 he's done a great job of um, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's looking to expand because it's important. I mean, TV, TV money is what drives everything. No, no mm-hmm. sport is going to survive on ticket revenues. Uh, you need TV money. You need a bigger footprint to get there and you got to get out of markets like Rochester to do it. So Sakevich knows that. And so he and he's going to virgin territory like San Diego. He's willing mm-hmm. to take a hit in places like Long Island, you know, with a short term hit. But in his case, the ownership group, they're all connected. It's he's not it's not just some the, the local grocer who did well and has some money to invest like in the old days. No, mm-hmm. he's he, so these people are well healed and ready to ride it out. So uh, so hopefully the, we're seeing expansion, which is necessary. But this is like slow and well thought out expansion, which is going to make the league much more sustainable than what it was going through just 10 years ago. Yeah. And, and Nick and Hutton and I chatted in our, in our conversation uh, with him about kind of the sustainability of the league. And it's interesting. You brought up 
uh, the the league fees for for the ownership fees. And I was listening to uh, an interview with Jim Foster, who created the Arena Football League, and oh, yeah. talked about that that similar notion. And even the the original iteration of the MISL too. It's it's funny that all these leagues came into kind of fruition around the same time, and ultimately had the the same. Uh, outcome and hopefully the NLL now has uh, that sustainability factor and it, it seems that they do. Yeah, I mean, I think, and again, I, I, sports history is something that interests me. Again, my soccer is largely, my background is largely soccer and I can give mm-hmm. you an alphabet soup of failed leagues. <laughs> so so I, I had like an instinct for this. And yeah, I mean, as opposed to, um, you know, uh, frankly, well, MLL, the major league lacrosse. Yep. Uh, for instance, I mean, NLL, you get the feeling it's it's going to be here. They've really they, they've they've passed that as as has MLS, Major League Soccer, for that matter. Mm-hmm. You, you just instinctively they've they've passed the threshold where you 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 no longer have to worry about them being a going concern. They're going to be there year after year. There may be continued franchise movement. That's nothing to be ashamed of. Hell, the NBA moves teams still, you know. Mm-hmm. Yep. But uh, but yeah, but if the, the, we can actually look forward to box professional box lacrosse is going to be here and it's going to stay here. And you couldn't say that even like you were saying, even ten years ago. Never mind in '87 or '74. So yeah, it's a good thing. Yeah, no, for sure. And, you know, and Commissioner Nick Sakevich has spoke about expanding uh, the next three years, adding a team each year um, to bring the league to 16 teams. Where do you think these teams will kind of be located? We've heard talks of, you know, Dallas, maybe Vegas. Um, and do you think this rapid expan- expansion is, you know, in a healthy state right now, given where the league is right now? Yeah, I, I, as opposed to most other sports where rapid, expa- rapid expansion would result in a real drop in quality of play. I think there's still such an untapped market of really good lacrosse players who whether because it's just not paying enough yet or uh, because of the travel, you know, I mean, there's only so many West Coast. I mean, British Columbia is a huge box across hotbed, but they only have one team. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe maybe they could travel to Alberta and it's not so bad, or Saskatchewan, not Alberta, Saskatchewan. Oh yeah, and Calgary, Alberta. But um, but that may that, that may be inconvenient if you still need to work a day job, if, as opposed to if you expand to say Seattle or Portland. You know, so yeah, I, I don't think rapid expansion is going to hurt the quality of playing this league. Mm-hmm. Where it is, where it is, is again going to the right places and making sure you have the right ownership. Um, uh, and I, and I think the, the current league administration has got their eye on that. Where's it going to go? I mean, Ve- for some reason, everyone's in love with Vegas now. I, I don't know why, but they're not alone, but it comes down to if, 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 if the NHL team is willing to back a lacrosse team, uh, you're going to roll with that. Cause I mean, that, that mm-hmm. pairing has seemed to have worked well. I'm mm-hmm. assuming, you know, the rumor is what Fort Wayne Panthers, I think is the name someone found on the, uh, uh, trademark registration trademark, site. Yeah. Yep. So, so there's your Dallas area team that's been rumored. I mean, I've heard Detroit, I've heard Chicago. I mean, there's been previous failures, but again, if you got the right people backing it, who are willing to bite the bullet, um, it's it, those are good places to be because those are TV markets. I mean, if you want to mm-hmm. get a TV deal where people are paying you to broadcast the product, um, th- that's that's where you're going to have to be. You're going to have to get the Los Angeles again. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think you're going to see another attempt to go to Syracuse. I don't think you're going to see a great effort to get into other Canadian cities like return to Edmonton, although Halifax, my hometown, my birth town, I should say, was a pleasant surprise because that was never really Mm -hmm. in anyone's books. Uh, Because, again, Canadians are still not Saskatchewan, notwithstanding, they're still a bit lukewarm towards the concept of professional box across. But, yeah, I think if you, you, you you put more teams in the Northwest, maybe you get 
British Columbia energized. I mean, Ontario, which is the other great Canadian uh, boxla hotbed, they've got the rock. You know, they, yep. you, you, they're already kind of energized. You, mm -hmm. you, although Vancouver's got a team, that, that franchise has been so, so moribund for so long that no one knows if they're really paying attention. But you get Seattle in there, you know, give them a reason to get excited. It, it might be uh, a good thing. The other kind of wild card here is that as the, the college game, the college field game, the mm -hmm. D1 teams keep expanding. And you've pro I know you guys have noticed Mm -hmm. You know, these, these new D like my son goes NJIT, he's not playing, yeah. but they have a brand new, they, they have a D one team. It's like their third year. They can't compete recruiting people from long Island and Maryland because they're going to keep signing with the hotbeds. Mm -hmm. So how do you get, how do you get competitive real fast? You bring down Canadian box players. Yep. And so, you, so you're going to start to see this. And so, and American field players are going to start seeing, you know, there's a skill set here that works pretty good. I get You know, I'm going to, I'm going to start playing box in the winter to keep, you know, keep in shape, just like as a soccer player, I would play indoor soccer. Yeah, different game, but it's still a ball, it's still a goal. You get skills that work. And as you see, and more, Amer you're going to see more of this cross-pollinization. And now and you, you don't have to worry about tapping into British Columbia. You may start getting a real body of American box players who are good. You know, people like, not just people like Matt Rambo, who are converting pretty well, but mm -hmm. people who have actual box experience. And, and so, no, I, I think now's a good time to expand because, you, you, you may, at the risk of sounding overly optimistic, you may soon have a surplus of players. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and this is the business angle of things. If you don't expand, someone's going to form a rival league. Yeah. Someone's, someone's going to jump on an opportunity and form their own league, and then, and then you've got problems. So there's a reason why MLS is expanding so quickly. They don't want another league. You know? there's, mm -hmm. a reason why, uh, there's a reason why hockey doubled its size. In 67, because if they didn't, the, the Pacific Coast League was going to take it from them. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it is a, there's both business and serving the game. It's good, but it's only good if you're careful about it. And Nick has shown that, you know, he, he's making sure he's getting well-heeled people who are committed to the long term. Not like, hey, uh, like, like rather famously, I think it popped up in a in podcast um, one of the Eagle League owners did on the Good Seats Still Available podcast. Uh, one guy, uh, the, the New York guy, bought a team because he wanted to put his, his son on it. You know, yeah. you're, bringing, you're, you're, bringing, you're bringing owners like that in there. It's a, it's a recipe for disaster. No, absolutely. And I, I think you really hit on, too, with uh, the popularity of the sport from a field perspective where, you know, a lot of these traditional field guys like a Matt Rambo, Tom Schreiber, we just had Kieran McArdle on, um, have seen the benefit of playing box lacrosse. But now, you know, we're starting to get people through U.S. Boxla, you know, in their partnership with the NLL, the grassroots effort. So it's not no longer these really good college field lacrosse players going into the um, NLL and thriving. You have players that, um, you know, are from America that are playing the box game in high school, in college, um, and already have that skill set when they do get to the pros. So, yeah, I think, you know, it's a exciting time to be a fan of the NLL because of this development, you know, with um, these athletes, you know, seeing the value of playing both field lacrosse and box lacrosse. Yeah, and there's and also this 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 um, snowball effect. I mean, as the league, that again, you've sort of seen in soccer, as the league gets more successful, it can pay more. That mm -hmm. way some kid, some kid on, playing on the sand lot today can actually dream about being a pro lacrosse player. Mm -hmm. and, and, yep. and, that, and that sustains interest. And yeah, and, it, and, it, and it's a good, it's, a, it's not a vicious circle, it's a good one. And, and, uh, and, and, and that's what I think that's what Rabel's going for with PLL, 
trying to say, okay, look, some of you feel kids will never see box and don't want to whatever, but I'm trying to give you something sustainable. So I'll keep you in the field game and, mm-hmm. and, you know, and good luck to them. Cause uh, you know, MLL hadn't been quite as successful as that, but MLL and NLL had like a good unofficial, although near the end it sort of stopped because their season started overlapping a little bit, but they were sort of playing along the way outdoor and indoor soccer did through the eighties. It's like, you can make a career playing in both leagues and we'll sort of help you do that by not stepping on one another. Mm-hmm. There was a point that changed, you know, PLL is working hard not to step on NLL to sort of allow that to happen again. But the mm-hmm. bottom line is the more it, bec- the more it's, it, it, it's more of an option to actually make a career out of, as opposed to just a paid hobby. Um, the, the more you're going to keep the best athletes playing the game you won't see Pat Spencer so quick to go jumping to Europe to play basketball instead mm-hmm. of coming and playing for my wings who took him with a sixth round pick, you know, it would, have been great, yeah. would, have been, would have been a great steal otherwise. Right. So, so yeah, I mean, th- these are good times. It's good time. I mean, uh, you, the, you, the, the term sport of the future gets thrown around a lot. In fact, the soccer joke was soccer is the sport of the future and always will be, you know, but, <laughs> uh, but, but with, with the cross, when you look at, People like hard-hitting sports, but football is almost getting too dangerous. And at some point, you wonder if someone's going to step in, as indeed the turn of the 20th century. You know, Teddy Roosevelt almost outlawed the game, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even hockey, because these guys are getting too big and skating too fast, and people's brains are getting jarred. People are going to want an option to see their physical sport without watching their children or their, or their favorite players getting turned into zombies as a result. There's a mm-hmm. lot of factors conspiring to, I don't know if conspiring is a word, but it's a lot of factors lining up to give lacrosse this opportunity to be the sport of the future. And I think both in the box and the field game, some pretty forward thinking people are, are working to jump on that opportunity. No, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And, and kind of along the same lines of your wings, let's talk about them a little bit in my wings as well. Uh, I know obviously the, the season's on, potential hiatus right now but if everything picked up in a couple of weeks what, what do you think the, the outlook for for these wings are it's obviously a much better start to the season in comparison to last year yeah it, it goes to show that i mean like like in hockey uh, good goaltending makes a world of difference i mean yep. paul paul day did a nice job with some tweaks as far as his field personnel but i mean zach higgins has been such a revelation in goal compared to what we had last year and everyone's it's like anything else they've played together a year uh so i liked what i saw i still i mean you know if we're being honest though i mean the most of those most of their wins have been against uh, the expansion sides Mm -hmm. and a really struggling vancouver team so it's still a bit of smoke and mirrors you still see new england and halifax a little better but it was certainly an improvement over last year they certainly had they certainly had a good shot of being a playoff team and of course once you're in the playoffs Anything's happened. Anything can happen. You get a hot hand and you're good to go. So one wonders whether this hiatus will benefit them or hurt them. You know, momentum's a funny thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, given all I heard this morning, the CDC had uh, recommended uh, no gatherings of 50 or more for another 60 days. I mean, at some point, the, the season may be over. You know, yeah. I, mean, I, I don't know what's going to happen, um, but uh, which would be unfortunate, be even more unfortunate if you're a Flyers fan. Um, but, Agreed. you know, as I, as, as I joke, yeah, the, the the 1994 Montreal Expos are, are really they're weeping with you, all right. So. <laughs> no, yeah, definitely. So we we look forward to hopefully uh, the season picking up. You know, we don't know with uh, these trying times what's going to happen, but um, 
Even if the season does not continue, we do have some vintage lacrosse games that you guys can check out on crosscheck.com. Um, Steve, this has been great. We really appreciate you kind of giving us a, a quick run-through of the history of you know, box lacrosse in North America. Um, we really appreciate it. Where can Just remind people where they can find you on social media and online. Well, I'm on social media at Lax Maven. That's Lax M-A-V-N. That's my Twitter account. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, Crosscheck, which is with an E, so it's C-R-O, like lacrosse stick, crosscheck.com. Mm-hmm. It's got Twitter. It's at RetroLax underscore. I haven't mm-hmm. bothered changing the name yet. I think on YouTube, the, the channel's still RetroLax, but you can access all the YouTube videos through the Crosscheck site. Um, and I think that pretty much covers it. Yeah, no, we, we appreciate it. Um, we're definitely going to check out some of those games, um, and we appreciate you reaching out, too. Like I said, we, we've had you on our list for a while, ever since uh, Adam listened to The Good Seats Available, and he turned me on to that episode, and uh, we've kind of just been fascinated with it because a lot of this we didn't know existed um, previously. You know, I didn't really realize there was anything earlier than the MILL, um, so I, I appreciate you, you coming on and you know, sharing your knowledge, and uh, you know, hopefully we can kind of bring some more of a spotlight onto the pro game to some people that may not know about it. No, my pleasure. I mean, there's a great history out there and yeah, people should look at the videos because you get to see when they played on plywood and they were (laughs) using wooden sticks and the goalies didn't look like the Michelin man. I mean, it's fascinating to see how the sport has evolved. So yeah, I I hope people check out, check out the site, enjoy the videos, leave comments, spread the word because I mean, we're all looking for content right now, but, but history, I mean, History is important. It's important to remember that we didn't, we didn't talk about it much today. Maybe it'll be another podcast. But, you know, the great players of the past, what, they're the ones who inspired the players you enjoy today, and, and they ought to be remembered. So, yeah, I mean, uh, check it out, uh, read the articles, look at the videos, and, yeah, I mean, uh, spread the word. History is a great thing. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Today's show is being brought to you in part by Stitcher Premium. You can use Stitcher Premium to listen to shows ad-free such as Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, My Favorite Murder, Wolverine the Lost Trail, or our favorite, The Fantasy Footballers. For only $4.99 a month or $34.99 a year, you get access to Stitcher Originals, bonus episodes, and comedy albums. Better yet, if you go over to stitcher.com premium and use the promo code lacrosse today, you can get one month free. So head on over to Stitcher, sign up, and get your free trial today.